Warning to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, the following program contains the name of deceased persons. My name is Ros Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag Newspaper here in uh, broadcasting out of Melbourne, Australia. And I want to acknowledge that we're recording on Indigenous land, on the land of the Wurundjeri people here in Melbourne, land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. On the show on Red Flag Radio, you will expect to hear politics, history, theory and activism from an unapologetically radical revolutionary socialist perspective. In each episode, I'm joined by people involved in campaigns, debates, activism on the ground. And we're very lucky today, uh, me and Liam Ward here, who's my co-host and producer from RMIT University and a socialist activist as well in Melbourne, to be joined by Gavin Stanbrook. Gavin Stanbrook is um, speaking to us here today from Sydney, one of the co-organisers of a of a rally last week in response to another um, black death in custody in Yundamu in the Northern Territory and a rally that happened in protest last week in, in Sydney. Gavin, welcome to Red Flag Radio. Can you tell us a bit about your history as an activist, what radicalised you and a bit about um, your background? Sure. Uh, hi, Rosalind. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a number of things. Personally, the, just the experience of racism in this country, I think, really shaped the way that I interact and, and view the world, specifically, you know, from a young age growing up in an Aboriginal community and, and going through the rounds of, you know, regular police presence on the community, you know, just the, the, the intensity of, of poverty, I think, really shaped me as a younger person. But then... More, more generally, uh, I started to turn to anti-capitalist politics and, and revolutionary politics um, a couple of years ago, about five, six years ago. And that was more just more generally just the, the I think, my response to the decay of, of the system. Like you had the global financial crisis and then the, I guess, the austerity measures that came from that. And you know, looking around the world, there was struggle breaking out across the globe in response to the financial crisis. Um, and so, really, it just took, you know, someone like, you guys are probably going to laugh at this, but someone like Russell Brand to articulate that um, in his Truth News, um, which had, you know, in his early stuff, had a bit of an anti-capitalist edge that really, I guess, um, awoken me to you know, revolutionary politics and, and more radical ideas. And where, so whereabouts did you grow up? What's your, um, what's your family background? Because I know that you've also been involved in campaigning around um, the Barraville murders of, of uh, Aboriginal children in, in 1990 and 91. Can you tell mm. us about the, that and your family's connection with, with that case? Yeah, so so I'm from Gumbangi country on the Coffs Coast and Barraville's a, I guess, a coastal regional town uh, about 40 minutes south of Coffs Harbour. And in the 1990s, there were three, as you said, three Aboriginal children who were um, murdered within a span of six months uh, by a local white racist. Um, all of those three children are my family members. Uh, it, it, whether closely 
related or distance. And it, it was something that I, as, as a younger person growing up in Barrival on the Aboriginal Reserve there, what we call the mission, uh, n- noticed my family campaigning for basically since the 1990s. Um, and so the case itself um, has had its ups and downs. Um, it's had its, its, uh, its moments. Um, it's, it's been something that I think has seriously impacted our family and it's something that I've been involved in it basically ever since I got politically active to really kind of be a part of carrying that fight um, here in New South Wales. Because um, effectively what we're dealing with is a state, is, a, is an institution, the courts, that are disinterested in delivering justice for these three children but despite the overwhelming evidence um, that basically proves that, you know, who is the individual who took their lives. And the very fact that you've been campaigning around this since, or the family has been campaigning since 1991, you know, mm. just is in, in and of itself uh, a, a sure sign that the justice system or the injustice system is really not fit for purpose in this country. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think, you know, the, the, the legal system under capitalism exists to uphold, you know, and protect private property. Um, and we can see how, it, how the legal system treats workers, for example, like, you know, the 2017 railway strike in Sydney that was called off by the Fair Work Commission, like just completely removing any kind of democratic rights for workers to go on strike. So the same could be said around questions of racism and racial oppression, you know, like a system that literally um, was founded on genocide. You know, the, the Australian state and the court system was founded on genocide, has no space, no room to deliver genuine justice for people who are oppressed by that system. Um, and so I think the experience of our family is is one of many experiences around the country where we have someone, we have three children taken from us and in, in each case, the evidence is, is uh, in terms of tying the cases together is, is overwhelming. Um, yet nearly three decades on, you know, our families are still marching in the streets of Sydney for justice. Yeah. You know, a lot, a lot of these witnesses are, are dying. People are, you know, passing on. We're, we're losing time. And yet the state as an institution continues to deny us the justice that, you know, that they say they give people in this country. And so, yeah, I, I think for, for our family in particular, the, the, the struggle and, I think any progress that's come out of the case itself has always, always come from the demands and the protest movement of, of our community. And that pressure, I guess the pressure of um, organising and campaigning and being active around these questions uh, is, I mean, it's part of the reason why we've got you on the show today because of the protests that you organised in response to what happened um, up in Yindamu. So should we talk about as much as we can um, the events that happened in Yundamu on, on November the 9th. Do you want to describe uh, or talk about those events um, for us? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I think it's 
you guys would have known, and, and I think the, the entire, the whole of the country is aware of of what's happened in Yundamu, j- just by the, just in the very, very detail of you know, people know that a young Aboriginal boy was murdered in that community, and you have to look at I think the family's response to that to really get an idea of why um, so many people are aware of it. But basically, yeah, we we have a case where um, this young Aboriginal boy was at home um he was um out in the community uh attending a family's uh for a funeral um witnesses in the actual case and aunties have been quoted in in articles as saying that um shots rang out in the house as police uh went into the home um people have witnessed him subsequently being dragged out of the house um apparently unconscious uh, and then taken back to the police station where the, the entire community was denied any kind of um, assurances, any kind of information about what had happened to um, young Kumanjai Walker. And for basically uh, more, than, more than 10 hours, I'm pretty sure, um, that this community were denied any information. The police locked themselves in. With um, Kumanjai's, with with Kumanjai in the police station, they turned the lights off, um, and all the reports say that um, there were, you know, that the, the police say that they were calling an ambulance. Uh, you know, they, they say there was an ambulance on its way. You know, I think a lot of this information will come out um, hopefully as we move forward, and I think it's um, something that we need to keep an eye on. Uh, but effectively, yeah, they've. Um, there's been a young, another young brother um, taken in our communities. Uh, I wanted to ask, tell me if we, if we can't talk about this and if you want us to cut it out um, afterwards, uh, but I wanted to talk a bit about the way the media have covered, um, you know, done the sort of romantic job of, of puffing up this, this cop, you know, talking about what a hero he was, uh, his kind of war record, etc. You know, the, on, on the day after he was charged with murder, there was you know, a front page piece on the Murdoch press, uh, making out, you know, what it, this heroic figure, which I think, I think speaks a lot to um, that, you know, the whole issue of black deaths in custody isn't just about the police. It's about the state and all of the ruling class kind of institutions who understand, you know, they see a need to kind of get in there and defend these cops. Yeah, definitely. Well, it, it is just definitely the case. We have seen a barrage of, um, you know, media reports, you know, talking about the uh, background of the alleged and how, you know, statements like you know, being an upstanding citizen, being someone who, uh, you know, is, you know, meant to be respected in the community. Like one of the things that they were talking about was how, you know, the guy was in Afghanistan and how, oh, yeah, he was a, um, a leading light over there. It's like, excuse me, I don't know if you've been following the ABC reports, but Australia's involvement in Afghanistan is definitely not something to be applauded. Yeah, at read all. the Afghan files. <laughs> yep. Yeah, especially if you think about what the SAS has done over there um, to you know uh, families in a Ruzgan province. It's like uh, this is not something to be celebrated. Um, but more generally, it's something that we see, and as Liam pointed out, um, it's a response that comes out. Immediately, uh, in in all cases of black deaths in custody, where we see, um, you know, the, just the overwhelming kind of 
evidence that something that something violent went on that someone was their life was taken by the state the the media roll out all stops and i think we saw the same with chris hurley and palm island uh, with the palm island right um we saw the same with the vig- the vigilante killer of young elijah Doty in kalgoorlie mm-hmm. um and I, I completely agree it's about the system protecting itself you know the 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 state as an institution coming back to what i was saying before you know in order to be able to run capitalism effectively they need these institutions um you know like the media to be able to you know i guess guide discourse and like influence the way in which people talk about topical issues or political issues but then you've also got the police the police as an institution that effectively you know are are the purveyor of violence on behalf of the state and for the state it fundamentally requires the police as an institution in order to function and so it's not going to allow any kind of movement to get away with criticizing the police and criticizing their actions and you know the way in which they go about themselves and i think you know we saw it with imark look at the blockade imark protests that happened in melbourne like the cops there was a cop in that rally that literally flashed like fascist neo-nazi symbolism yeah and then it was later found out that he had literally like nazi iconography on his facebook page that he immediately like took down after the rally yet all of the media and the police well the police put out this line oh no he's not a fascist and the media say oh no he's not a fascist and so that you have this complete i guess attempt to wash it down completely it's like a whitewash I wanted to just go back to the Kamanjaya Walker case because there's another element of it I think that's quite common in a lot of cases of black deaths in custody and that is the lack of medical care provided and in in Yundamu what seems to have happened is that a, a lot of the um, white health workers who work in that community had just recently left literally no one was there or no services were available or this is the story that we've been told to provide any kind of first aid or medical care and that is the same in a lot of other cases where the cause of death is some other medical complaint like you know um uh septicemia i think it was in the case of miss do not being treated properly by healthcare services being ignored when you uh, complain about a particular a pain or whatever being told to shut up and this was the case yet again um, in Yundamu with with um, Kumanjai Walker can you say a bit about that what you know about that yeah um, as far as I'm aware the the line coming out of the media is that yeah the, the there was no medical services on site and I think what that generally speaks to is just like the, I guess the 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 cha- the chaotic situation that we have in the Northern Territory and in Aboriginal communities and regional areas where the government just completely retreats from providing any genuine legitimate service in terms of healthcare for these communities. Um, and I think that's the the fir- in the first instance that's a problem. Um. And we can see how that's connected to, you know, the Northern Territory intervention, the reorganization of funds and, and you know, literally entire communities. Um, but then on a question of the way in which the police use it, yeah, um, 
I effectively it's it's like as if they're trying to say, oh well, the poli- the medical services weren't in the community because the community, is, you know, apparently there was these you know there's the statements about the um the crime the petty crime that had happened in the community beforehand. Really, what they're trying to do, I think, is lay blame and criminality on the community itself. Because right now, all attention is on the police. Everyone's saying, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong. There's mm. something wrong has gone on here. Um, and so, you know, how, how do you how do you divert attention? Like they did, they did the same thing with Palm Island when uh, Mr. Dumaji was was murdered. You know, when the community rebelled, the the media and the police try to say, "Oh well, you know, it's their fault." And I think this this is in in terms of the way in which the media is talking about it is, yeah. is a similar reflection of that. It's trying to just trying to say, "Oh well, he could have got medical services, but no, the community, are, you know, they're criminals, and so and so we couldn't have medical staff in the community." I think that's what that's about, and I, and obviously it's 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 bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's relying on all of the age-old since invasion stereotypes around First Nations Indigenous people, uh, you know, being violent, being not not mm. being civilized enough, all of that kind of absolute horrendous uh, racist those racist tropes that wherever the media or politicians or the police can kind of find some way of regenerating that narrative that they will absolutely do that and and you sort of think well what about all of the other people in that community who might need health services <laughs> like everyone in the community who might have needed health services that day no one has the like this, we're talking about australia this is the 21st century the right mm. to access medical care and you just don't you don't get you don't get to have it if you're indigenous and Incredible. so many of the deaths you know it's and not even just in the remote communities, so many of the deaths happen in urban centres in capital cities, mm. you know, and it's still the case that the police just deny medical attention to the people who they're killing. Um, you know, so many people die alone slowly in police cells uh, precisely because it doesn't matter if they're in, it doesn't matter if the city they're in has the world's best state-of-the-art medical centre. Yeah, it's true. not for black people. That's the cops, you know. Yeah. So, Gavin, tell us a bit about, the response in Yundamu then, because there was a very kind of visceral and immediate response that people went and protested at the police station and there were people organising in the community. Um, do you, can you, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, it was, it was incredible. I think immediately after, after events took place and the media started to get out uh, and words started to spread about, um, you know, Kumanjai's death, it was, I think it was it was kind of like a it was it was like a f- flashpoint in a way because you had this community that you know protested themselves really just got out there and were like no this is not on this this is not acceptable and then they immediately put the call out and said we need everyone to support us um you know just like an amazing call out for solidarity um which it was definitely answered people you know, organisers from around the country came together to, to pull um, a national day of, of action uh, for justice for Kumanjai Walker. Um, and so I think, yeah, the rebellion and the kind of immediate response of that community to protest, to, to stand outside of the police station and paint it up with their handprints, you know, now the iconic image uh, that you can see on the Justice mm-hmm. for Walker Facebook page, uh, it was kind of like an immediate snap response. And effectively 
yeah, they, they wanted people to stand with them um, in this campaign for justice. And, that, I mean, the fact that a police officer has been charged in this case is actually quite unusual because most of the time things are covered up or no individual is, is charged um, or even close to being charged. And I think you can probably put that down to these rallies and protests being organised. You know, like when people mobilise mm. and pressure is put brought to bear on the police and the justice system to say, we're not going to stop. You can't just hide this under the carpet or whatever. You know, we're going to raise mm. this issue and we're going to demand justice for this for this young person. And yeah. and within hours, uh, the, the charges were laid. Obviously, they tried to hide it and the the accused was moved out of the state or whatever. Mm. But, um, you know, what do you think about the fact that somebody has been charged in this case compared to other cases? Yeah, I I think it's absolutely incredible. I think it's a reflection of the power of the community, Um, their protests in particular within the community, then the thousand strong protests in Alice Springs that happened the Thursday after. And of course, the protests that happened around the country on on the Wednesday. Um, You know, I... You know, organizing with another excellent young activist here in Sydney, Nessa Turnbull Roberts, uh, you know, coming together at, with the thousand, uh, you know, upwards of a thousand people in Sydney, organize that within, you know, within three days. It's like this is this is a pretty um, significant turnaround, I think, um, to have that many people come out in just that span of time. So it, sh- it shows that people around the country were pissed off and were, were prepared to come out for it. And yeah, I think it, I think you're definitely correct. That is that is what's laid down this murder charge. And the reason it's significant is because uh, coming back to what I was saying before, that you know the state doesn't allow to allow criticism easily. You can't just get a get a cop charged for murder. Think about how many black deaths in custody have happened in this country since the Royal Commission. You know, it's been over 400, and none of those cases have um, had a have had a police. Um, charged except in 2002 in I think it was in Kalgoorlie but obviously that officer uh, got off and uh, his his charge was downgraded and eventually the case was dropped um so it's 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 significant um and it it, it connects to a bunch of um I think moments it, it, over the past you know decade two decades that we can point to where we can say actually the, the protests and the radicalism of the community in response to these murders in many ways determines what is going to be the immediate response from the state. You know, the Palm Island riots, the reason they took that case to, to court um, and Chris Hurley was charged was because the community raised hell after um, Mr. Dumaji was murdered. And in the same case with um, Elijah Doldy, I think... Um, in that community, the, the protests and then the protests that happened around the country in response definitely meant that they couldn't just allow these racists to get off with what they did. Um, but it does raise bigger questions. Obviously, it says, okay, it's it's the protests, it's the organising, it's, it's the getting on the streets, it's the pressure that really actually, you know, produces concrete wins and victories for our community when we fight. So I think that has a lot to say for, you know, what we need to do in the future um, uh, in, in, in all cases of black deaths in custody and um, victims of crime. Yeah. And let's, I mean, 
We have uh, listeners from all around the world. I've checked the stats just recently to this podcast. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of uh, positioning kind of racism in Australia as the context for this for this murder um, of this young person and the fact that we've we've been talking about the Roy, or you mentioned the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody. Basically, back in 1991, there was a Royal Commission called because people basically had looked at the statistics and the evidence around, particularly when we say Black Deaths, we're talking about Indigenous Australians uh, being killed either in police custody or in prisons or in on remand. So anywhere where they're being held by the state or the justice system or the injustice system. And there was this commission and it came out with all of these recommendations, over 300 recommendations, like everyone saw this and internationally it's kind of this massive major human rights issue. Um, but what we know since then is that you said four, more than 400 people have been killed since 1991. So I guess the, the question people would have is, well, why? Why does this keep happening in Australia? Yeah, well, I think for our international listeners, um, you know, colonization in Australia, I think, uh, is is a similar process to to what we've seen in in Canada, for example, where you know you had the stolen generation, where the state removed children, you had the genocides, you had the massacres, um, but effectively, you know, in the same way that the Canadian state was founded on genocide, the Australian capitalist state was founded on genocide. You know, every, literally every colony that linked to form um, the Australian state during Federation had uh, had to commit genocide at some point on the Aboriginal community to to lay the basis for modern industrial capitalism. Uh, and so, the you know, the first act of, I guess, you know, capitalist um, development in this country is just, you know, dripping with the blood of Aboriginal people. You can't remove the racism um, that that I think is expressed and is still expressed today. You cannot remove that from the DNA of the Australian capitalist state. Um, and so, you know, you've got the, I guess, the initial fact that, yeah, the, the institution was founded on genocide, but then you also have the the daily, I think, functioning of the capitalist state in Australia um, and how how that as how itself as an institution relates to Aboriginal people. Now, um, in, in many ways in Australia, like our community, when it comes to social welfare policy and these kind of things, we're treated as guinea pigs. Effectively, the, the Australian government has a um, welfare um the, you know, policy that's about freezing income for Indigenous communities. And what they what we've seen is that's now being rolled out around the country. And the same with policing. Um, we, we saw, uh, you know, the, the militarised police force, the tactical response group, which is, a, which is one of the key kind of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, is units within the police force that's sent out to, to riots and these kind of things. That as a as a group within within the police force is now expanded to every police force around the country, and it was used to smash Aboriginal um, rebellion not only before the, before the nineteen hundreds, but after. So in the seventies and the eighties, as riots across New South Wales and across um, you know these communities. So what you have is this racism at the core of the state that. Um, expresses itself in many different ways in which the state relates to Aboriginal people and blackness in custody is definitely um, part of that. 
and you know the prison population as well is another big yeah. factor here in Australia because you know you have to be in custody to be killed in custody and since 1991 the percentage of um, adult prisoners in Australia who are indigenous went from 14% then to 28% today so that's doubled and one staggering statistic from today is that in the Northern Territory, which is where this community is that we've been talking about, every single young person in juvenile detention in that in that territory is Indigenous, you know. Mm. So, I, I mean, this has been a, f- a fantastic discussion and we really appreciate you being on the air. I, I feel like it calls for having you back sometime to talk a bit more about some of that um, institutional, uh, systemic, state-based racism and violence that exists um, in Australia today. And and we'd love to have you back if you're open to coming back, Gavin. Yeah, definitely. I'd I'd love to join you guys. And have you got anything that you would like to ask listeners to do to show their support and solidarity with people, with uh, community in Yundamu? I know there's a GoFundMe page for the... um, for the family's legal costs and so on. Is there anything else that you would like to give a plug for while we have you? Yeah, definitely. So I think, yeah, as you said, go and check out the GoFundMe page. Um, all you've got to do is go on the GoFundMe and, and type in you and Demu and it should bring it up. Um, I think definitely the, the other thing is, yeah, we, we need to respond to the call whenever the families come out and demand solidarity and ask for people to um, get on the streets. I think all of our listeners, listeners in Australia need to uh, respond to that and, and join them. But I think more generally, yeah, like this is something that is is not going to go away. Blackness in custody is going to continue. You know, we've already had reports of uh, one or two um, Aboriginal people who've, who've been um, murdered um, since um, Kumanjai Walker was taken. So, you know, it's it's getting worse and what we need people to do is get active, get organised and fight back. Well, that sums it up, I think. Um, Gavin, thanks very much for your time. You've been listening to Red Flag Radio and we want to say this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you for listening. <laughs>